thank you, Lord, for our day together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can look into your word and we can see how glorious and great your son is, that he is both the lamb and the lion of Judah who is coming back to reign. And we pray, Heavenly Father, as we look into these words about your great hope that you have stored up for us, Lord, that we would persevere, that we would learn more about your glorious gospel, and that we'd be more reinvigorated to proclaim that gospel to those who are perishing. We pray, Heavenly Father, you'd help us think well upon your biblical text this morning, and again, so that we can learn more about who you are and what you've done for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to remind all of you, the last time we were in Revelation together a few weeks ago, we were in Revelation 4. We finished that. And remember, Revelation 4, the focus was on the throne room where the Heavenly Father was sitting on the throne. And remember, I had given you an introduction into chapter 5 where I mentioned that when we get to chapter 5 now, we're going to see Christ function much like this great Redeemer. And remember, we talked about a Redeemer the idea of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament. A kinsman redeemer had the obligation and the privilege of redeeming property of a relative. And let's, so for instance, let's say you had a relative who'd lost some property because of foreclosure. The kinsman redeemer's duty was to purchase that on behalf of the family so the land would not be permanently lost from that family. Okay. And we saw how there was three criteria that the kinsman redeemer, the goel, had to fulfill in order to be a valid goel. Number one, they had to be related. Okay, so the kinsman redeemer had to be related. And we saw how Christ himself was related and the fact that he was a man, right? He was born through a virgin birth, born a man as we see in Romans 5, 12 through 19. And so he, Christ is related through the virgin birth. Second, we know that the kinsman redeemer had to be able to pay debt. And I want you to think about how Jesus was able to pay our debt. Why? Because he was sinless. As it says in Hebrews four fifteen, he was tempted in all manner as we are, yet without sin. Right? So he's able to pay the debt. Those are the first two criteria. The third one is the kinsman redeemer also had to be able to get rid of the usurper. So let's say you had a kinsman redeemer who's trying to redeem land for a relative and there's a bunch of squatters on the land. Well, he may be able to afford to pay off the debt and he may be related, but if he doesn't have the power to eject the usurpers on the land, what good is he? And so that's what we see Revelation is all about. Revelation chapter 6 all the way to chapter 20 is about the power of the Lamb to eject the usurper. So what we're going to see is in the throne room, there's a seven-sealed scroll. And as that seven-sealed scroll is opened up, the wrath of God is going to be poured out. It comes from the Lamb, and He's going to demonstrate that third criteria. He has the power to eject the usurper. So this morning, you're going to see that Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, is also the Lion of Judah. Yes, he's the Lamb who was slain, but he's also a Lion whose military prowess is unparalleled. And he will come in great power and wrath and take back that which is rightly his. So that's what we're going to see here in the throne room. And again, all of this is for the sake of his saints, those who have trusted in his name. Let's begin by looking at the Old Testament background to this seven-sealed scroll. I'll put up Revelation 5.1. John, again, is writing this. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. First of all, notice that this is a book. The term book here is biblion. And some scholars try to claim that it couldn't be a scroll, but it had to be a book that had a binding like ours. And the only reason they say that is because there's imagery here where the Father is holding it and it's open. And they reason that you couldn't hold a scroll that way. I think that that's really weak. I think that this is really a scroll, and it's written on both the inside and the back, and I'll show you what's significant about that. Now, remember, this scroll, because it has seven seals, if you lived in the Greco-Roman world at that time, right away you would think a title deed. 
because all title deeds for land had seven seals on it. And so the rightful owner was the one and the only one who could break the seals. And of course, I think that imagery is very important because who is the one who breaks the seals? Jesus. So who is the rightful owner and heir to the world? Of course, it's Jesus Christ. That's the imagery. Now, remember back in chapter 4 of Revelation, what was the backdrop in the Old Testament? Well, it was Ezekiel chapter 1. So just as Ezekiel the prophet saw this vision of, remember, the four creatures and God on the throne, in chapter 4 of Revelation, John sees the same vision. Well, now that we're in Revelation chapter 5, lo and behold, the backdrop is Ezekiel chapter 2. In Ezekiel chapter 2, Ezekiel saw a scroll that looked very similar. Listen to what he says, Ezekiel 2 verses 9 through 10. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Now, notice the similarity between Ezekiel's scroll. It was written on the front and back. And sure enough, when John describes the scroll that he has, it was also written on the inside and the back. And that's a very particular thing to notice. And I think it's deliberately linking this, what, that is what John is seeing, back to what Ezekiel is seeing. Now, why? Why would there be, by the Holy Spirit, a deliberate connection between Revelation chapter 5 and Ezekiel chapter 2? What's the common situation between the near and the far? Well, I think what's in common is the wrath of God. In Ezekiel's day, the wrath of God is going to be poured upon Israel, specifically Judah, for their idolatry and their unbelief. So, for example, when you get to Ezekiel chapter 4, you have the siege of Jerusalem being predicted. When you get to Ezekiel chapter 14, you see the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts poured out upon Israel, the same, same judgments that come in Revelation chapter 6, Okay. So what I want you to understand is in Revelation, the wrath of God is going to be poured out, but now it's not just on Israel, it's going to be upon the entire world because the entire world is going to be judged for their idolatry. And so God uses then the 70th week as, in a sense, a reversal. The last seven years, God will pour his wrath upon the world, and at the end, he will save Israel as a nation and bring them to Messiah. So the commonality, I think, is the wrath of God that's about to be poured out. All right, now, let me keep moving for the sake of time. I've got some really interesting things to get into here. I want to talk here about how God in the book of Daniel, he sealed the revelation. In fact, before I put this up, when God revealed what he was going to do regarding the consummation of all things in the book of Daniel, recall he just kind of gives a thumbnail sketch. And so he has Daniel seal up the, the book about the consummation of all things until the end. Well, in the book of Revelation, the same book now, I think, is presumably on the table, and it's going to be revealed. Okay, so turn your Bibles, if you will, and I'll show you what I mean. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Remember in Daniel 9, Daniel had prayed a very godly prayer where he had longed to see all of God's promises be fulfilled, namely that God would indeed reign get rid of his enemies, and then he'd reestablish Jerusalem. And Gabriel, the angel, then responds, giving God's words to Daniel. And we see that extended all the way into Daniel 12. So Daniel 12, verses 1 through 3. This is Gabriel now saying this to Daniel the prophet. He says, now at that time. Now what time is he referring to? He's referring to the end, the latter days. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. Now let me just stop there for a moment. There's been a lot of literature written about that sentence that Michael, the archangel, would arise. Some scholars have tried to claim that that arise means to stand aside. I wrote a research paper once on that, and I rebutted that. No, it really means that he arise to stand as a defender. And we can prove that contextually throughout how that term is used in the Old Testament. So what's interesting is in the last time, Michael the archangel is going to defend Israel 
And sure enough, you see that in Revelation chapter 12. That's exactly what happens. So it goes on to say, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to everlasting contempt. So let's stop there. Obviously, the resurrection is being referred to here. So we know that this is at the end. All right. And then verse 3 He says, those who have insight will shine brightly, these are believers, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. Now, let's continue in verse 4, then I have that on the screen. So this is what Gabriel, this is the words of God from Gabriel to Daniel. He says, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. So notice what's to happen to the book. Well, it's to be sealed up until the end time. So now, as we open up to Revelation chapter 5, that book is going to be unveiled again about the consummation of all things. In fact, when you get to Revelation chapter 22, after all of the prophecy is given, listen to what the angel tells John. Revelation 22.10, he says, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So does everyone see the difference? Back in Daniel's day, it was to be sealed up, this book about the consummation of all things. Why? Well, it was to be sealed up until the end. Now, those are the last days that you and I are living in now. Now, bless me, when did the last days begin? Exactly. With Jesus' first advent, it ushered in the last days. His coming as a man, truly man, truly God, the subsequent pouring out of the Spirit ushered in the last days. That's according to Hebrews chapter 1. All right, so we're in the last days. And so because we're in the last days now, now notice John is switching, not saying, hey, we have to wait till the last days or the end time, but now the time is near. The term engus means at hand. It's imminent. Why? Because we're living in the last days. And so all of the events then in the book of Revelation about the wrath being poured out, it is an imminent threat to the enemies of God, but it's an imminent blessing to those who trust in Him because they're going to be raised. Yeah, Brian. Uh, And knowledge will increase. Yeah. I take that to, to mean that knowledge of Daniel's book will increase. The people went back and forth. I've heard that used, misused, as far as general knowledge, which is used in other places in the Bible. But this is particularly just speaking of that. I, I agree with you. I think the best read on that is it's not talking about general revelation, but it's talking about special revelation. Remember, general revelation is what we can know about God's creation through the creation or know about God through the universe, through the scientific process, etc., through our senses. But special revelation is what's revealed to us through Scripture. And I think that's exactly right. In Daniel 12, 4, the idea is that knowledge will increase because God, in the end, will give further revelation. And sure enough, we have that. Ephesians 3, 5, the mysteries of the gospel were proclaimed through the apostles and prophets. So the prophets are those then that re- reveal the mystery that was formerly concealed. So we do have knowledge increasing in the end, the last days as it were, not because we continually are getting revelation, but because we have the finished work of the scriptures now. They weren't finished in Daniel's day. They are now. So I think that that's the increase in knowledge. And so sure enough, you and I know more about God's redemptive plan than they did then. So think of it this way. Daniel gives the thumbnail sketch, the outline of what God would do. In Revelation, God gives very specific details so that we can know, hey, these, he's, really, uh, he's for real about this. He's not, you know, he's not making it up. This is stuff that you can take to the bank. Yeah. yeah, good comment. Now, one thing I want to talk about, again, is two images that come together with this seven-sealed scroll. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think they're actually they go hand in hand. So first of all, The seven-seal scroll really is about this book disclosing God's will 
for the consummation of all things. So in Daniel, it was sealed, but now it's open and is revealed. And this book then, when the seven seals are broken, it takes you all the way through the rest of the book of Revelation to the millennial kingdom, even into the eternal states, all right? Now, the second aspect, the second image that comes into play with the seven-sealed scroll is the fact that I don't think if you read this, this passage in John's day that you could come away without thinking about a title deed for a property. And so I don't think they're mutually exclusive. In other words, the seven-sealed scroll is like God's title deed. He owns it all. And so through the pouring out of the wrath of the Lamb, God takes possession again of His whole creation and His people reign. Now, let me give you three points of evidence that suggest that, yes, this title deed imagery is really there. Number one, remember God's right to rule was explained to us in Revelation 4.11. Because God is the creator, He has the right to rule. It's, it, he owns it all, right? Heaven and earth are His. We saw that in context, Revelation 4.11. Second strand of evidence is Christ is depicted as the Redeemer in Revelation 5.9. In fact, the verb agorazo will be used where Christ is depicted as purchasing us and the rest of creation from a marketplace that was sold into... We were like slaves sold into slavery in a marketplace, and Christ, the kinsman redeemer, purchases us back. So he has the title deed. He owns us, and so that is prevalent. And also the inheritance, number three, the inheritance of the saints is seen in Revelation 5.10, later on again in Revelation 11.15, and then all the way in Revelation 22.5. So those three strands of evidence, I think, suggest that, yes, this title deed is certainly an image, and it's not contradictory to the idea of number one, that God is disclosing through this book the consummation of all things that was left off in Daniel. All right? Yeah, Paul. Whoops, sorry. Yeah. Can't move that fast, brother. Yeah, about the uh, end, consummation of all things, uh, the abomination, desolation of Mark 13, the birth pangs, as, as you have told us about. Yep. Is all this referring to the last judgment? You know, um, in Mark 13, what we're looking at is the events that happen in the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. We know that because Jesus' language in Mark 13 is parallel to the opening four seal judgments in Revelation 6. So it's not necessarily the end of the judgment that Jesus is referring to in Mark 13. He's referring to the last seven years as a whole. Does that make sense? So instead of thinking about just... The, yeah, instead of thinking just the white throne judgment in Revelation 20, think of it, Jesus' words in Mark 13 are about conceptually the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel that was left off in Daniel 9. 69 weeks were fulfilled, number of years, 483 years at Jesus Christ's first advent. Well, then there were seven years left over, and they were deliberately postponed, and that's what we're waiting for, Okay. And so that's what Mark 13 is all about. Does that make sense? And so Revelation 6 on then is the breaking forth of that seven-year period. Yep. Well, I, I think Revelation 6 and Mark 13, I think they are synonymous, yeah. Yep. So they're covering the same time period. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Now, I'll keep, keep moving on here. I want to get to uh, the fact that Jesus is worthy to open these seals. We're going to read verses... 2 through 5. So remember, the the focal point thus far has been on the Father, on the throne, and now all of a sudden we're going to see Jesus enter the picture. So right away, what should come to our mind is that glorious passage in Daniel 7 where the Ancient of Days is on his throne, the Heavenly Father, and all of a sudden a Son of Man comes in, and all dominion and authority in the kingdom is given to him. That's exactly what we're seeing here. So Revelation 5, verses 2 through 5, John says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. 
And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, first of all, notice the question that the strong angel asks, Who is worthy? Now, the question there with worthy, the term oxios, what's very interesting is it initially had to do with weightiness. Someone's worthiness was associated with their magnificence, their weightiness. Like a king, when he comes into the room, has more weightiness than the average Joe. It's that sort of idea. But in the scriptures, the weightiness of God and the weightiness of Christ is tied to his moral supremacy. The idea that he's different morally, that he's pure. Let me give you an example of this. Turn your Bibles to John one twenty-seven. John one twenty-seven. you'll see this is John the Baptist, and he's at the baptism. And what he's talking about here is going, he can't, he's not worthy of untying the sandal of the Messiah. And the term worthy is the same term that's used here, axios. John one twenty seven. this is John the Baptist. He says, it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, what I'm going to show you later is that, notice in John one twenty seven the phrase, the one who comes after me. That's the phrase from Psalm 118.26, the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. I'm going to show you today that that comes from Genesis 49.10. That itself is a messianic reference. So what John the Baptist is saying is that morally he is not worthy of untying the mere part of the sandal, the, what is it, the thong, on the Messiah. That's how worthy the Messiah is. Yeah. Well, I just noted when you, when you made the connection between worthy and weightiness, yeah. that's also related to this Hebrew concept of, of glory, kavod, yes. of being weighty, heavy. Exactly. That's amen. Thank you, Dana. Yeah, so when we, um, we blaspheme God or we sin against him, we're stealing, in a sense, the glory that he deserves, his kavod, the weightiness that he deserves to be shown, and that will, be, again, be restored, too, when he reigns over all the earth. Yeah. So again, the idea then is Jesus is the one who's worthy because he's morally pure, all right? So that's what you're going to see. Now, notice here, the question is who is worthy, who has the weightiness and the moral purity to open the book? Now, this term anoigo, open, notice it's used four times in these verses. So if you want to know what these verses are about, it's about who can open, it's used four times, who can open the seals? That's what it's all about, all right? Now, the term anoigo is interesting here. It's very simple. It just means to open. But in context, what's interesting is it has to do with revelation. But if you think about it, even the prophets and the apostles were worthy, apparently, because God gave them the ability to do so. He used them to reveal his redemptive plan. So it's not merely the one who is worthy to open. is isn't one who can just reveal things, but it's one who can also carry them out. So Jesus Christ isn't merely one who's going to break the seals and open them to divulge what's in them. He's going to be the one who carries them out. He breaks the seal, and he is the God who carries that seal forth. He's the one who not only reveals, but he's the one who performs the judgment. That's what's being depicted for us. Now, notice the cry. It says, again, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Verse 3, it says, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open. That's John's fancy way when he says no one was in heaven or on earth or under the earth. That's his way of saying that there was no one in all of the universe. All right, no one. In fact, the language is very particular. Notice in verse 3, no one, notice the underline, was able. The verb there for able is dunamai. Bob and I, you'll hear, he and I talk about a term dunamis, which is the noun, or sometimes there's an adjective too. Then dunamai is the verb. Well, you can hear the root for dynamite, right? It has to do with power. Um, well, we translate it typically with ability. 
So for example, example, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. When it says no one can, it's dudamai. No one has the ability to come to God. Okay? So here, no one has the ability in all of the universe to open the seals. Now what's very interesting is the tense of verb that's chosen here by the Holy Spirit. It's an imperfect verb. And the imperfect verb shows us that this condition is both ongoing and chronic. In other words, it will never be alleviated through all of history that someone will be found worthy of opening the seals. It is an ongoing problem. Year after year, generation after generation, it will go on to all eternity. It is open-ended. No single person is ever found worthy of opening the seal in all of the universe. And so hence you have this great despair because here John, like Daniel the prophet, wants to see the consummation of all things. He wants to see God faithful to his promises. And so he's weeping bitterly. There's great despair. Who can open the seals? How are we going to have a resolution and the consummation of all things occur if no one can open the seals of God's book? And then all of a sudden the good news breaks forth. Who is found worthy? Well, the relief comes. Notice on the screen, it's the lion. Remember the angel says, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book. That's the good news. So notice the worthiness of the lamb to open the seals is found, number one, in his messianic credentials. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. There's his messianic credentials. But number two, it's also what he does or has done. Notice down at the bottom of the screen, he has overcome. So oftentimes when I give the gospel, you'll hear me talk about the person and the work of Christ. What is the gospel? It is the person and the work of Christ. What's being accentuated here? Well, his person. Well, who is he? He's the lion from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. He's the root of David, Isaiah 11, verse 1 and verse 10. And so who was this Messiah to be? Well, Isaiah 9.6, he's both a son and he's mighty God. And so he's worthy because he's the God-man. That's why he can open the book. This is God. But he's also, look at his work, he's an overcomer. And he's the one, as we'll see later, that overcame for us. So again, why is he worthy? His person and his work. Bob was preaching out of Acts, and he talked about all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, right? And remember that name is now Jesus. And Jesus' name, in the ancient Near East, the name represented the person and their work. It represented their character, who they were, and what they did. Now I always joke about we give names to kids because we don't want them to have the kick me sign in kindergarten, right? Or we just like the way something sounds. But back in the ancient Near East, they chose a name because they thought that that name would represent the character, the person and work. Jesus' name, what is it? Yeshua. Yahweh saves. That reveals both his person and his work. Now, I want to focus on this line that I've highlighted blue, that Jesus is... Whoops, I'm having trouble with my computer. That Jesus is the line of Judah and the root of David. Here, Revelation 5, 5, I'm going to just focus on this, the line that is from the tribe of Judah. Now, does anyone know where that comes from? I mentioned it earlier. It comes from Genesis 49.10. Now, Genesis 49.10 is somewhat of an enigma all wrapped up in a question mark, but we are given data as to what it means, and I think we can understand it. Let me show you why this is such a significant prophecy. Genesis 49, verses 9 through 10, recall that here you had Jacob, who, what's his other name? Israel, right? He has 12 sons. Well, here he's about to die, and so he's giving a blessing upon his 12 sons, which end up being the 12 tribes of Israel, and he's also prophesying over them. Well, in verses 9 through 10, he comes to Judah, and listen to what he says of him. He says, Judah is a lion's whelp, and so that's where we get this idea that the Messiah would be like a lion from the tribe of Judah. 
He says, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Okay, now let's stop there. I get this picture of someone going into the lion's cage and taking a feather and kind of annoying him on his nose. Well, who's going to do that unless you've absolutely got some marbles loose in your head, right? No one's going to want to do that. And so there's this military prowess associated with Judah. And as you're going to see, this passage is messianic. So that military prowess is really being associated then or attributed to the Messiah himself. He's nobody to mess with. That's why in Psalm 2, remember God says, you nations, you kings, kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish as his wrath is kindled for a little while. He's no one to mess with. The lion is the king of the jungle. And no one goes and messes with the the king of the jungle in his cage, right? Well, now in verse 10, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, the term scepter there is shevet. And shevet just has to do with a scepter that a king would have. And it was a symbol of his right to rule. And then what we have, let me show you, we have what's called synonymous parallelism, meaning the the two thoughts are identical. So the scepter that shall not depart from Judah is synonymous with the ruler's staff not departing from between his feet. They're saying the same thing. Now, here's one thing that's somewhat crude, but you need to know it because it actually helps us understand the passage. When it says the ruler's staff will not depart from between his feet here, because the depart is attributed down to here, well, the ruler's staff not departing from between his feet, the feet here is more than likely a euphemism. And it's a euphemism probably for genitalia. Now, you might think, well, what in the world, why would that be there? Well, because it's through procreation that the Messiah will come. So I want you to think about where we are in redemptive history in Genesis 49. The first promise in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent. And then we see that the seed is going to come from Abraham, Genesis 12 through 15. Then he's going to come from Isaac. And then from Jacob, and lo and behold, Jacob is Israel, and he has 12 sons. And so now it's being revealed that through procreation, this son is going to come from the lineage of Judah. Now, I think this helps us understand the significance of circumcision. Remember, Paul labors this point in Romans chapter 4, that when Abraham was saved, he was saved prior to circumcision. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, not until two chapters later, when you get to Genesis 17, do you have circumcision as a sign. And Paul labors the point that circumcision was a sign of the promise. It wasn't the promise itself. It was a sign of the promise. Bob today in his study in Colossians 2, 16 This is very important. He's going to show the distinction between the shadow and the reality. Circumcision was a sign that through procreation, through Adam's lineage, or I'm sorry, Abraham's lineage, Messiah comes. And so that's why it's talking about the ruler's staff not departing from between his feet, the euphemism. Through procreation, the seed promise will come and he's coming from Judah. So when the Messiah comes, circumcision was a sign that through procreation, the Messiah would come from Abraham, Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah. When the Messiah comes, why do you need circumcision? The reality is here. And that's what Bob's going to be focusing on in his sermon today. When the substance is here, you don't have to go back to the shadow. Okay? So I think that that helps us understand what circumcision was about. Now, Here's the point where it gets a little difficult, but I think it's very neat. Notice he says, nor the ruler's staff, it will not depart from his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, this has given interpreters all sorts of fits for many, 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 many years, and it continues to do so. The the question is, who is the Shiloh? And I'll give you some of the different interpretations. First of all, Shiloh is a Jewish town 10 miles north of Bethel, That's where the tabernacle first came to Israel, really during their early years under Joshua. You read about that in Joshua 18. This is where Eli and his sons, remember uh, 
They were the priests there at Shiloh. But the question is, well, how could Shiloh, this town, come? It doesn't really make any sense because there's movement attributed to Shiloh. Shiloh's coming. Well, a town doesn't... It's like saying, well, until Minneapolis comes. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So interpreters are kind of left scratching their head, you see. So let me show you how our English versions... By the way, before I move on, let me back up. What I have before you on Genesis 49.10 there, that's the New American Standard Bible. Okay, They just don't play any games. They just say, until Shiloh comes. All right? But there's better readings of this, and I want to show you how our English versions handle it. The debated term is this Hebrew term, Shiloh. Okay, and I'll explain some of the significance of the consonants and the vowel points here in a moment. But let me show you how the ESV handles it. The ESV has a better reading on it, I think. The ESV in Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. Okay, now what's going on here? is what the translation team is doing with the ESV version is they're breaking the Shiloh into two words. They're keeping the same consonants. Because remember in Hebrew, you have consonants, then you have vowel points. Okay, They're keeping the, the same consonants, but they're saying, no, it's really two words that some scribe must have jammed together. And so Shiloh literally means tribute to him. And so putting it together would be until tribute comes to him namely the Messiah, because he's the one that will have the obedience of the nations or the peoples. Okay, so you can see it's very messianic, isn't it? All right? Now, that's a really good reading, but the next one is the one I think is the, is the best. I think this really nails it. The Net Bible. How many here have access to the Net Bible, have used it? I used to think the Net Bible just meant it was on the Internet, Net Bible, but apparently it stands for New English Translation, Okay. The, only, the reason I thought it was the Net Bible on the Internet, because I always found it on the Internet. I never found it anywhere else. But Dan Wallace, who was with us some years ago, he and a team had worked on this, and it's a wonderful translation. I don't always agree with it, but I don't even always agree with any English translation. I don't even always agree with myself. Okay? <laughs> I have food that doesn't always agree with me. So um, the point is the Net Bible does a wonderful job. And here I think they nail it. Notice how they render it. They say, The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, the nations will obey him. Now, why did they nail it? Well, because here they're keeping really the same consonants. It's just the vowel points are somewhat different. They're not having to break it into two different words. Now, what's most powerful behind this reading is there's a large body of other works that support it. For example... Let's start from the left. There are some Masoretic texts that actually have that spelling. I think it's only one, but you have a representative example. Okay? Number two, the Samaritan Pentateuch. Remember the Sumerians? They come about right around 700 B.C., right? The Samaritans, they had their own Pentateuch. They were considered kind of half-breeds by the Jews. Well, in the Samaritan Pentateuch, it also has, it supports this spelling. All right. Notice the Targums. Those are Aramaic uh, paraphrases. They also support this kind of reading until he comes to whom it belongs. The Septuagint supports this reading. That's very powerful. That was really the Old Testament to a certain extent to the, for the apostles and prophets in the New Testament. Notice this 4Q252. This is from the fourth cave at Qumran. It was a commentary in the book of Genesis. And lo and behold... Their understanding and reading supports this reading until he comes to whom it belongs. Now, with that reading, certainly what's being expected is that there is one who's coming in the lineage of Judah, and he owns it all. He has the right to rule. And what I want you to see is that once we get that proper reading down, it opens up the rest of Scripture because you see this promise all over the Scriptures. The next time you see the one who comes... I believe, is in a commentary on this passage in Psalm 118. Psalm 118, again, probably written some 450 years later by David. Remember, Psalm 118 is a Hallel psalm. Psalm 118.26, it says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. 
Now, what I think is going on here is the psalmist is building off of this prophecy. Okay? Now, I want to prove that to you. I want to show you how significant that phrase is. Turn your Bibles to Mark 1.7. Again, turn your Bibles to Mark 1.7. I'm going to show you again John the Baptist's words. And he's borrowing John the Baptist deliberately from Psalm 118.26 and Genesis 49.10. And again, he's describing, just like we saw in John 1.27, he's describing that he's not worthy of untying the sandals of the Messiah. Mark 1.7. This is John the Baptist. It says, And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. Now, I, I can't remember if I uh, read this in Mark in the Greek, but I believe there's a participle there. And the point is, notice the phrase, John the Baptist says, the one who comes after me. He's not just talking about some generic person who's going to come. He's talking about this passage, the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. It is messianic, okay? And so that is being built off of the one who comes here to whom it belongs in Genesis 49.10. So realize when John the Baptist is saying, there's one who is coming, the one who comes after me, I'm not worthy of untying his sandal, he's making a messianic reference. He's referring to Genesis 49.10, which is commented in Psalm 118.26. Now, turn your Bibles to Mark 11.9. I want you to see that as Jesus enters in, to Jerusalem. And by the way, we're going to be celebrating that uh, not next Sunday, but the following Sunday. Okay, so, and by the way, I believe the triumphal entry occurs on a Monday, technically, but don't let details get in the way, right? We have to have our Sundays, right? But as Jesus comes in, the people were shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. It's a messianic reference. All right, it's from Psalm 118.26. So notice here, Mark 11.9. Those who went in front and those who followed, this is Jesus entering into Jerusalem. They shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. What are they crying out? They're crying out Psalm 118, 26. They're proclaiming that he's the Messiah. Now, some meant it and some didn't. But that's what they're crying out. All right, now, I'm going to show you another passage that shows the significance of this. Luke seven nineteen. Now, remember here, you have John the Baptist who's in real trouble. His earthly life is almost over. He's going to be beheaded. And he wants to make sure that his trust in this Jesus wasn't misplaced. So he sends word with his disciples back to Jesus and his disciples saying, are you the one who comes? Luke seven nineteen. He sent them to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? And again, that phrase, are you the one who is to come? It's the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. It's the one to, to come to whom it belongs. It's a messianic phrase. So what John the Baptist was asking is, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? And what's Jesus' response? Tell them that the deaf hear, the blind see, that the lame leap like a deer and that the poor have good news preached to them. He cites these passages from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, which prove, of course, I'm the Messiah. Of course, I'm the one who was to come in the name of Yahweh. All right, now, let me finally give you the coup de grace, which I think supports this reading. And that's found in Ezekiel 21, 26, into 27, actually. Let me just back up. Turn your Bibles, if you will. I want you to see the context here. Ezekiel 21, 26. I'll wait for you to turn your Bibles there. As you're turning to Ezekiel 21, 26, the context is you have judgment coming upon the wicked kings of Judah. But here is the rub in Jewish history. If the kings of Judah are wiped out by the Babylonians, what happens to the Messianic promise? So what God has to show is that he's still going to be faithful to the one who comes, okay? So notice here in Ezekiel 21, 26, it says, Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Now let me stop there. The crown is going to be removed from Zedekiah. God is fed up with these wicked kings of Judah, 
Instead of trusting in Yahweh for protection, what did they do? They made a covenant with Sheol, didn't they? They made a covenant with Egypt. They would make a covenant with Assyria for protection. And meanwhile, God is saying, well, what about trusting in me? Wasn't I the one who reduced the Egyptians to nothing and parted the Red Sea and did all of that? But no, they trusted in man rather than God. So he goes on, he says, This will no longer be the same. Exalt that which is low and abase that which is high. Then he continues in verse 27. Now remember, threefold repetition means superlative. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin, he says, I will make. This also will be no more until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. So what God is saying here is through Ezekiel, is that the crown is going to be taken from the Judean king, Zedekiah, because of their sin. And it's going to be removed, and the Judean kings will not reign again until it comes to the one who comes from Genesis 49.10. So notice the messianic promise is going to continue, but there's a temporary postponement and judgment upon the kings of Judah. But to me, this is finally the final coup de grace that shows us that, yes, the Net Bible has Genesis 49.10 exactly right. Now, what's exciting about that? I'll tell you why it's exciting to me. I love the fact that beginning in Genesis, we see a messianic promise of the one who comes, and he's coming from the lineage of Judah. He's coming from Judah, and it's reiterated in Psalm 118. It's reiterated in Ezekiel and redemptive history. And then in the New Testament, What's the last Old Testament prophet on the scene? John the Baptist. And what does he say? I'm not worthy of untying the thong of the sandal of the one who comes. He's announcing the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, our scriptures are messianic. Don't let anyone tell you, well, you know, these New Testament writers, they just read into the Old Testament what they wanted to. That's a new perspective that we see going on in the seminaries. The idea that the Old Testament really isn't messianic until people saw the events after the fact. Er, wrong answer. <laughs> the Old Testament's about the Messiah coming. Bob had mentioned in one of his messages, can you imagine sitting under Jesus' feet in that Luke 24 where Jesus opened the scriptures and he explained himself to his disciples concerning the scriptures where he found himself in all of them? I just wonder if that was one of the passages he looked at. Isn't that wonderful? So we know then when it talks about in Revelation 5, the lion from the tribe of Judah, that's extremely messianic, isn't it? He is the one, therefore, who has the right to break open the seals. Now, he's also called not only the lion of Judah, but he's the root of David. Okay, notice again, Revelation 5, 5, it says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, notice the phrase, the root of David. That comes from Isaiah 11, verses 1 and verse 10. And so in Isaiah 11, 1 and 10, we have something called an inclusio. Bob talks about those quite often. And I'll show you how it, it, it's formed. But let me show you Isaiah 11. I'll put in verse 1 and 10. Here's Isaiah 11, 1 and 10. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the shoot of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Now, I obviously skipped verses 2 through 9 there, but I'll kind of give you a summary here in just a moment. Now, here's where we have the root of David come from. The root of David... In the Greek, it's Ritza. Well, when you look at the Septuagint of Isaiah 11, 1 and 10, Ritza is found actually in both places for shoot and root. Okay? But in the Hebrew, the shoot and root are different. Okay? The shoot has to do with someone from the lineage of Jesse, but the root of Jesse is someone who is the originator of Jesse in verse 10. So what's interesting is in Isaiah 11, 1 and 10, you have a descendant from Jesse. Now, who's Jesse, remember? He's the father of David, exactly. So we have someone who's going to come from David's lineage. That's in Isaiah 11, 1. 
But in Isaiah 11.10, we have the one who is the originator of David's lineage. And so do you see in Isaiah 11.1 and 10, you have both a man and God in one passage. Okay? Let me read to you, and there's more significance than I, can, I have time to get into, but let me read to you what this great scholar, J. Alec Mottier, writes about this passage. By the way, if you want a dynamite Isaiah commentary, there's an Englishman named J, and it's just J, period. I don't know what his actual name is. Alec Mottier, M-O-T-Y-E-R. And he has a wonderful, wonderful commentary. I, I just would be lost without him because he is so good. He sees things that uh, he's just really owned the text. So let me read what he says here. He says, quote, Isaiah 11.1, 1, one of the most striking features of this remarkable passage is the dual title of the coming king as both the shoot and the root of Jesse. The reference to Jesse indicates that the shoot is not just another king in David's line, but rather another David. Very interesting, huh? Listen to what he says. He says, In the books of Kings, successive kings were assessed by comparison with their father David, but no king is ever called David or the son of Jesse. Among the kings, David alone was the son of Jesse. And the unexpected reference to Jesse here has tremendous force. When Jesse produces a shoot, it must be David. But to call the expected king the root of Jesse is altogether another matter. For this means that Jesse sprang from him. He is the root support also, though, and the originator of the messianic family in which he could be born, unquote. So isn't that beautiful? So what's being expected here is someone who's both man and God, and it's another David. It's not a king who comes in the lineage of David. It's another David-like person, the greater David, the Messiah. Now, in context here with Revelation 5, 5 then, when Jesus is called the root of David, it's leaving it open to us to say, well, is he a descendant of David? Or is he here the originator of David? I have to be honest with you, I'm not sure. And we might say it's plenary, meaning it's yes, it's both. Okay? Now, I'll just make my case here. I think more than likely here in Revelation 5, it's the lineage, the the human ancestry that's important. Because why? Well, because he was a lion from Judah. That's his earthly lineage. And he's the root or shoot of David. So in other words, if I were to translate Revelation 5.5, I would get rid of the root. I would put shoot. I would say he's a lion. That is, he came from the tribe of Judah and his, him, his family lineage. And he's also a shoot of David. He came from David's family. Okay? Now, let me show you a place in Revelation where I think it's clear that we see both the human and the divine origin of the Messiah. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Revelation 22.16, you'll see the same thing used here. Again, it's Ritza in the Greek. Revelation 22.16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root, there's Ritza again, and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, I think there what's being accentuated is not only is Jesus the root, he's the originator, but he's also the descendant. So there I think perhaps you have both the idea that he's the originator of the Davidic lineage, he's God, but he's also the man who comes as a descendant from David. Okay? Again, context has to be king. But what do we see here? Jesus is worthy of opening the seals because of his messianic credentials. Make no mistake about it. He's the Messiah. Now, I want you to think about all of the messianic pretenders that you hear today, and there'll be more to come. There's been many, many in the past. Do any of them fulfill this beautiful prophecy that we've seen before us? No. Not not one prophecy do they fulfill. But yet, Jesus fulfills them all, showing us that he's the one. Now, let's go on to see his work. Notice 
He's not only the line of the tribe of Judah, but he's also the root of David. But he's also the one who overcame. So there's his work, and that's why he's worthy also of opening the seals. The term overcome there, nikao, Jesus is the one who purchased our salvation for us. Revelation 5, 5b, it says, The line that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Turn your Bibles real quickly to John 16, 33. I'm going to show you that Jesus is the one who has earned our salvation completely for us. And again, that's accentuated time and time again in the book of Revelation. When you see people singing around the throne, they're singing about what? The lamb that was slain. They're singing about Jesus overcoming by his blood for the sake of his people. And Jesus talked about this during his earthly ministry, John 16, 33. He says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have what? Overcome the world. So oftentimes you hear people talking about becoming an overcomer. How can you and I be an overcomer in this life? By trusting in Jesus. That's how. We see that, for instance, in 1 John verses 5, 4 through 5. Notice how many times overcomes, nikao is used, three times. John says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let no one ever deceive you into thinking that being an overcomer implies that you're working for your salvation. The reason that's important is we saw in Revelation chapters 2 through 3, Remember that phrase seven times, to he who overcomes, I will give the right you know, to have white clothing or whatever the promise that Jesus gives. It's all promises surrounding salvation. Seven times he says, to he who overcomes. And I've heard that be abused by different cults and different false religions. They'll say, well, you see, you have to do some work. But er, nope. How is it that you're really an overcomer? By believing in Jesus because he is the one who overcame it all for us. Dear ones, Jesus is worthy of opening the seals of this scroll that has to do with the consummation of all things and taking together the title deed back to God because of who he is. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and because of what he's done. He's the overcomer by his shed blood. All right? All praise be to him. Now, does anybody have any questions or comments or things that they would like to add? Brian. I got to be honest with you. When, when you say, oh, you should get this uh, commentary, uh, yeah. Moncree, or, oh, or yeah. Bob says, oh, yeah, I got uh, three volumes of Lane or <laughs> something like this, I'm not doing that. Okay. okay, I I honest okay. I, I I can't do it. Okay. okay, now I get I've had printouts from Bob a couple occasions sure. or somebody's done that, but yeah. I I'm not going out and buying those things. Which is why I want to say yeah. how thankful I am to you and Bob for breaking this stuff down. That connection between the circumcision in Genesis connected with uh, Revelation 5, that, that's, uh, that, that stunned me. That was uh, very, very uh, good. So I, I really appreciate when you guys break down the verbs and use the original Hebrew text, and I, my, my brain would absolutely explode. Uh, so between work and doing this and doing that, I don't have time for that. Sure. I, I, I wish I had more time. I do what I can, but I, I just, uh, we don't know how fortunate we are, loved ones, this kind of stuff is not taught at very many places. And when you hear the, the, the word of God broken down and we can see the continuation of the themes throughout the whole Bible, it's incredible. And those, most places don't get that. So thank you. Oh, thanks, Brian. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Bob and I um, and Adam and our, all of our teachers here, uh, Dana, and uh, we, we're going to be dedicated to that because the scriptures are where the power is. By the way, just so you're not scared, J. Alec Motyer's commentary is one volume, and it's about this thick. But, uh, but if anybody's interested, it's, it's really dynamite. It's put out by IVP, so don't be scared of it. You could probably get one pretty cheap on Amazon. So. 
Baby steps, exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for these great promises, and we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've shown us beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the root of David, that he really is the Messiah, and he's the only one that could fulfill all of these prophecies. And Lord, we're thankful that he was the one who was worthy to open the seals and that this wrath will be poured out for the sake of your great name. We thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that we've been spared through this wrath because Jesus overcame for us. We're so grateful, Heavenly Father. Now I pray for stamina upon Bob now as he fights with this cold. I pray, Lord, that the word in our worship would just continue to be a blessing to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.